Hi, this is astronaut Charlie Duke, 10th man to walk on the moon on Apollo 16 in April 1972. And I'll be coming to Space Fest 9 in July in Tucson at the Star Pass Marriott Resort. And it's a great thrill uh, being on and listening to the Dr. Sky Show. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much, the Dr. Sky Show, with great guests from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, and celebrity guests in the mix. Let me be the first to thank our producer extraordinaire, Richard Dugan, of radio station KZSB, that's AM 1290 in Santa Barbara, California. And a big shout-out to our flagship radio station, that is KTAR News 92.3 FM out of Phoenix, and we, of course, welcome all the stations around the nation. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it's a rare treat to talk to a man who's actually walked on the moon. This, an amazing story about to unfold today on the Dr. Sky Show. And also, we're going to be promoting the upcoming Space Fest 9 gathering that will happen in Tucson, Arizona, at the beautiful Marriott Star Pass Resort from July the 5th to the 8th. On the line today, and it's a tribute, a real tribute and a privilege and an honor, to have the 10th man to walk on the surface of the moon, Charles Duke, the lunar module pilot of Apollo 16, and also, ladies and gentlemen, the Capcom, as Neil Armstrong himself had suggested that he be the Capcom for Apollo 11, Charles Duke. Mr. Duke, welcome to the Dr. Sky Show. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, it's really good to be with you today. Well, it's the highest of honors. I kind of shake here when I talk because I've had the privilege and honor, sir, of meeting five of, no, actually seven of the moonwalkers, and as you know, sir, today, only about four astronauts that walk the moon are still walking the Earth, but you were the youngest, is that correct, in the entire program of moonwalkers to the surface of the moon in the Apollo program, is that correct? I was uh, the youngest by four months, and uh, since nobody else has been there, I'm still the youngest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great honor, sir, and you know, as a young boy, and I'm sure like a lot of young men and women, I followed every one of these launches on my parents' black-and-white television when we lived back in New York. But let's start all over again and go and reminisce about the first, of course, of the great moon landings when Neil and Buzz landed on the surface of Mare Tranquillitatis, the Sea of of Tranquility, I should say, as you know so well. You were the Capcom for that particular mission. And is it correct that Neil actually wanted you to be the the voice on the other end of that uh, line, if we can say it that way? Is that correct? Uh, I was on, yeah, I was on the same job, did the same job on Apollo 10. And it was, uh, so it was decided uh, uh, that uh, the whole crew, uh, Gene Clancy's crew or flight would uh, roll over and do the same thing on Apollo 11. And uh, normally the Capcom changes. Uh, They Mm -hmm. usually have somebody uh, from the support crew for that. Uh, but Neil said, well, why don't you do that and uh, just continue on? So since we trained mm-hmm. for the uh, uh, almost the same mission on Apollo 10 except for the landing, uh, the whole crew was ready to go. And uh, so I was fortunate to uh, maintain, uh, stay on that uh, uh, Gene Clancy's flight and uh, participated in that first landing, which was uh, historic and a great thrill for me and humbling yeah. experience. Absolutely, and as those words from Neil Armstrong, of course, resonate in everybody's mind throughout history about being the first on the moon, your words, and I want to repeat them, and hopefully I get them right, and I quote, Roger Tranquility, we copy you on the ground, 
You've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. And I remember that like it was yesterday, sir. <laughs> and what? We're talking 47-ish years, or actually longer than that. So we're coming up, what, to the 50th anniversary very soon for the Apollo 11 landing. It's amazing how... Right. Well, uh, uh, this uh, next month's the 49th, so the 50th will be next year. Uh, a lot of celebrations uh, being planned, and uh, uh, we're just excited uh, to still have uh, uh, two of the uh, crews still alive, uh, Buzz Aldrin and uh, Mike Collins. Yes, sir. Amazing story in history. We'll concentrate for the rest of this particular interview, sir, if you don't mind, of course, on the epic journey of Apollo 16, Casper and Orion on top of that massive, most impressive rocket, the Saturn V. I was a young boy, sir, and I was brought down to Florida to witness what then would have been the Apollo 13 launch. And unfortunately, we were there not at the right time. We saw that massive stack sitting on the launch pad on top of that crawler. We actually watched it move out to the launch pad. But, sir, you're one of the few people in history that can tell us, you and your other two crewmates, what's it like when the fires and engines of those F-1 engines light off? What's that feeling like as you're moving out of Earth's gravity? Uh, the, uh, the vibration, uh, I thought, is extreme on uh, uh, Saturn V liftoff. Uh, the five engines are producing over 7.5 million pounds of thrust, and it's a 363 feet long aluminum structure, if you will. So as the engines move at the bottom uh, to to guide the trajectory, uh, that vibration uh, is transmitted up to the spacecraft, and it's a very significant uh, vibration from side to side. Uh, It's from shoulder to shoulder. And uh, uh, it was... uh, uh, it really got my attention. You know, it was the first and only time I'd ridden a, a Saturn, and uh, uh, I was uh, suspect. I said, is it really supposed to shake this hard? <laughs> but John was very uh, cool. Uh, we're go, and the mission control said we're go. So I said, well, maybe this is the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> wow. But it was really, uh, really vibrating. And uh, I, my heart, I was a little excited as to say the least, and mm-hmm. I found out later from the flight surgeon it lift off. My heartbeat was like 144, so uh, wow. I was really teed up. Uh, and but there was no noise. I, you know, the only noise you could hear was the uh, oxygen through your helmet and all the communications. Uh, the engine noise was uh, almost insignificant. Uh, which was strange because if you're standing away from the vehicle, the the noise and the vibration is um, is in, is intense. Uh, sure. Anyway, uh, it was a great ride that first stage. Uh, we burned up four and a half million pounds of fuel in two minutes and forty one seconds. Wow, that's incredible! And you know, folks, if you're listening to this, and we know you are here and around the nation. Our very special guest today, we're really privileged and honored to have Charles Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon, the youngest of the moonwalkers to ever go to the surface of the moon. And again, ladies and gentlemen, only 12 humans have ever set foot on the surface of the moon. We'll be talking about that and so much more with our very special guest. You know, Mr. Duke, I remember watching the Apollo 12 launch, and I know that President Nixon witnessed that there in kind of a stormy environment, rain and thunder and maybe lightning. And what I'm understood is that Al Bean, of course, and the other crew members on Apollo 12, is it actually true that they got struck by lightning, or lightning actually shut down a good part of their communications and electronics as they're going up into space? 
Well, uh, the uh, it did, it got struck by lightning twice, wow. and I think I remember a comment uh, uh, from uh, Pete Conrad uh, that said, "Hey, maybe we got hit by lightning," or somebody said something. It was just a suspicion, sure. but nobody. The whole. Apollo spacecraft electrical system went down, knocked off all the fuel cells. You know, uh, all of the the data was dro- uh, dropped off, and uh, okay. if it hadn't have been for uh, uh, and uh, well, I, uh, to me, uh, Pete Conrad was just the coolest commander not to abort, uh, throw the abort switch and uh, or handle and uh, and eject them off the, off that rocket. But he held his cool. And uh, finally, they uh, had a uh, data switch. They put the auxiliary SES uh, to aux, and they did that. And uh, the data started coming back to mission control. And then they figured out, uh, well, we'd been hit by lightning, but the instrument unit in the in the Saturn was not affected. So it was oh. continuing to control the spacecraft. Uh, and, uh, and, well, not the spacecraft, but the Saturn V. And so it was going to go to end orbit uh, uh, regardless of what the uh, uh, the command module looked like. But they got it back up uh, as they were going up. But it was really tricky, I'll tell you. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, closest calls that we had uh, in Apollo other than Apollo 13. Yes, sir. Totally amazing. Let's talk about the mission of Apollo 16. John Young, of course, Ken Mattingly, and yourself sailing to the moon. And this is an amazing journey, sir. In your words, this is what I've always wanted to ask, because I've built so many spacecraft, and obviously I try to read as much as I can. It's my favorite subject, sir. And I'm not just, uh, you know, kissing up here to the chef, as they say. This is really a fascinating story. Once you're in Earth orbit and you fire that particular motor, the rocket motor, onto your capsule and spacecraft, Describe the journey to the moon. How many days does it take? And you're still in the confines of a what? A rather small uh, environment, uh, to say the least, as you head toward the moon. Well, yeah, the the size of the command module uh, inside had 300 cubic feet, wow. but that included uh, all the equipment panels, the storage panels, the uh, seats, uh, everything. And so each astronaut had about. 68 cubic feet of volume that uh, we had to operate in. But frankly, you don't find it very uh, crowded uh, in in zero gravity. You you can float under the seats. You go up into the tunnel. You can float above the seats. And uh, so it was uh, nobody, I don't think, felt it really cramped. Uh, we had plenty of room. The uh, the uh, 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 the uh, the other uh, part was on the way to the moon. It took for Apollo. It took three days, about seventy-two hours, uh, and that was because of the fuel budget we had on the command service module engine. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, if you fire direct to the moon, you're going so fast when you get there. We didn't have enough fuel in Apollo to slow down and get in orbit, and then get back out of orbit again. No. So they. Uh, uh, pointed you way out uh, in front of the moon and allowed gravity, Earth's gravity, to slow you down. So the uh, initial velocity, like 25,000 miles an hour, but the average velocity over the trip to the moon was uh, probably 3,500 miles an hour. And uh, Mm -hmm. so when you arrived at the moon, you were still going too fast to go in orbit, but you had enough fuel to slow down 
get in orbit and then enough fuel left to get out of orbit and bring you back home. So the trip up was 72 hours, trip back was 72 hours. That's amazing, Mr. Duke. I'm still scratching my head because thinking about this in history, it's probably, and I'm saying this, and you're always free to comment, this is probably what the greatest technological feat that the human species has ever done. And it's interesting that we talk about space today where we have astronauts on International Space Station. They're simply in low Earth orbit. So U-12 and the other members, of course, not just those that went to the surface, those that went around the moon, have literally been the farthest humans ever in all time. And look, we're only two quarter million miles away. So we're hoping the future right. brings us great space exploration, too. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was incredible that uh, in Apollo, it was a technological high point, I think probably a thousand years from now, uh, one of the highlights of uh of the uh, 20th century or uh, human history up until that point was uh, was a, uh, leaving Earth orbit and uh, uh, landing on the moon. It was an incredible feat, and that we did it in eight years and two months from the time of the announcement of the program was incredible. Uh, we it was the U.S. was just focused on the space race, and uh, we were determined to win it and. Uh, so it was all out, if you will, for uh, uh, for the U.S. Uh, and uh, you know, basically an unlimited budget, four hundred thousand people working on it, great technicians and scientists, engineers, and uh, uh, they built uh, two great spacecraft. Uh, Apollo uh, command module had a serious problem in the in, in the block one, but when they got and so they had to fire. But they, we changed it all. And uh, got it back on track, and uh, we were able to, of course, kneel and buzz to land uh, eight years and two months after the announcement of the program. So, fantastic uh, accomplishment. Let's talk briefly about the descent to the surface of the moon. You and Commander John Young are at the controls of this amazing spacecraft, the Orion, as it continues to go down. About how high above the lunar surface are you when you begin the descent to the Descartes region, I believe, on the surface of the moon? This is interesting. Uh, we were about, but, uh, about 50,000 feet, uh, a little over eight miles. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think it was like 250 miles uprange. And so we started this descent. Hmm. Uh, uh, it Nine to, I don't remember exactly, but it was uh, nine minutes or so from the start of the ignition. You started the descent till you actually landed, wow. uh, and uh, you your the the attitude of the spacecraft was pointing. The windows were pointed out into space, so you didn't see the moon approaching. Uh, and uh, you were uh, the landing radar worked on, so you knew your rate of descent, you knew your altitude, and you had a profile, made sure you were on it, mission control, your go, and all of those things. So you had a lot of confidence that you were on track. But the vehicle finally, about 7,000 feet above the moon, it, it pitches down, and the windows come, move such that you can see the landing site for the very first time. Wow. And we recognized the major craters in our landing spot. Uh, we called them, had named them Lone Star and Gator, and we <laughs> saw those. And yes. uh, we started maneuvering to, to the uh, landing site. And unfortunately, uh, the photographs that we had to study uh, the landing site was a resolution of 45 feet. 
So uh, things less than 45 feet were not seen in these photographs. And and all of a sudden we realized there are a lot of craters up here that are less than 45 feet and a lot of rocks. And and uh, you had to make decisions really, really quickly to find a, a level spot without a crater or boulders. And John did a fantastic job uh, picking a spot and uh, – and we landed uh, with uh, almost dead level, and uh, uh, plenty of eat. Once we got out, we found it was really easy, easy to walk or walk around. But it turned out that we were about three yards beyond a big crater that we had not even seen. If we think of that, three yards backwards, <laughs> uh, we'd have had one leg back in this crater. Wow. And uh, I'm not sure we would have been able to get out the experiments package, which was on the backside. Anyway, we yeah, didn't. This is amazing. Now, this is an amazing interview. We continue here with Charles Duke, ladies and gentlemen, here on the Dr. Sky Show. He, of course, the 10th human to walk on the surface of the moon. Only 12 have. He's kind enough to spend time with us on the Dr. Sky Show. And I promise you, Mr. Duke, at the end, we'll be, of course, doing a buildup to Space Fest 9. You'll be attending along with many other dignitaries, astronauts, authors, speakers. I've spoken there a number of times, and that event takes place July the 5th through the 8th. At this most beautiful resort, as you know, sir, the Marriott Star Pass in Tucson. Obviously, folks go to and search for the website for Space Fest 9 right off of the Internet. But, Mr. Duke, getting on the surface of the moon, I mean, this is really amazing. I love the emotion part of this because your blood pressure is probably, you know, your heartbeat's going. You're on the surface of the moon. And what's it like, seriously, to come down that ladder? What were your thoughts as you actually step foot on this most amazing place, the moon? Well, I couldn't wait to come back, come down the ladder. Uh, we were supposed, to, I was supposed to wait ten minutes until John got down and stabilized. And so, I, but it was, I was so excited. I closed the, I changed sides and got on the side where I could get out the door. And I started out, and I was really excited coming down the ladder. <laughs> and uh, when I stepped onto the moon for the first time, I, it felt totally natural to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, not tentative steps. Of course, of course, we were the fifth landing, so we knew that uh, our our weight we weren't going to sink out of sight in the moon dust, and so you just get excited, and you the, uh, there were emotions like excitement and awe and wonder, uh, and uh, just almost unbelievable. I'm standing on the moon. Uh, I'm standing on the moon, and there was uh, probably the most beautiful desert uh, that I could describe, but with gray in color. Uh, very uh, rough topography is it rolling uh, ridges and stuff and uh, very sharp break between the bright lunar surface and the blackness of the sky no. and uh, so we were excited about it but we knew we had a lot to do so we were busy but we enjoyed it and the fun of the three days never left you know, Edgar Mitchell told me, I spent a lot of time with uh, Edgar, and of course you know him better than I do, and in his time, of course, in the astronaut corps, but he told me on the surface of the moon, he and Alan Shepard were so busy, they were pulling that little rickshaw, obviously, they didn't have the luxury of the lunar rover like you gentlemen had, and of course, the, the wonders of the lunar rover. He said that on the surface of the moon, he could look up at the Earth, and if I'm correct on this, tell us, as you look, he said the Earth appears like four times the size of what our full moon here is on the Earth, so simply way larger than we see our moon in our sky, correct? Well, it uh, it is. I mean, it is actually four times bigger, mm. but it didn't look like that to me uh, okay. in the sky. Uh, it was uh, a, a tremendous uh, view, 
Uh, unfortunately, where we stood on the moon, the uh, the earth was directly over our head. And so you look up in your Apollo suit and you're looking at the top of your opaque helmet. So you don't see. <laughs> see it very, uh, uh, except for looking through the little telescope we had on the rover to get the antenna pointed at the earth. But in earth orbit, we'd come around from the backside and, uh, before we landed and, uh, there was this beautiful earth rise, which was, uh, very, very dramatic, and I remember holding my hand out, and uh, from the lunar distance, the Earth would fit under the palm of my hand. So, uh, totally amazing, uh, ex- incredibly beautiful blue and white, and uh, little tints of brown every once in a while. The land was all brown. You're on the moon, as you know, for three EVAs, 20 hours and 14 minutes and change, and obviously the lunar rover goes some 16 miles in all your exploration there. But it's amazing that you come across these. I see one part of the video or the film at the time where you and, of course, John Young come upon a very, very large boulder. That's, that's incredible. I haven't seen large boulders like that in uh, previous Apollo uh, landings. Tell me about that. That's amazing. Well, it uh, was on our third excursion, and we'd gone to a, a objective what was called Northway Crater, which was a crater about to 500 yards uh, wide and about 100 yards deep. Uh, and uh, on we land, we stopped on the it would be the uh, southwest, uh, no, uh, southeast corner uh, of the of the uh, of the crater. The start of exploration, and I looked over, and uh, on the uh, far rim was a uh, uh, was this rock, and I said, John, let's go down and inspect that rock. He said, that's too far away. Let's don't do that. And I said, come on, John, it's just right over there. So I talked him into it, and so we started jogging. And so one of the problems on the moon, you have no familiar objects to judge distance and size. Yeah. No telephone poles, trees, cars, people, things like that. And so we started jogging, and the rock kept bigger, and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Finally, we ended up down there, and it was like house rock, we called it. Uh, I would estimate it was probably uh, 80 to 90 feet across the base and maybe 30 feet high. It was enormous. And uh, I'd be willing to bet it was probably the biggest rock anybody ever actually touched and got a sample of on on all of Apollo. That's incredible. You bring, back, <laughs> you bring back about 211 pounds, and I'm reading this, sir. I mean, you lived it. I'm, you bring back about 211 pounds of moon rocks of the so 850-ish pounds that came back through the whole mission. But this is amazing. This is more of the human side. You've done something on the surface of the moon, and I'm sure other astronauts have too, but you do something very symbolic. You leave on the moon a family portrait, your family, and you put it inside, what, a little piece of, like, plastic envelope enclosure. And also, if I'm correct, sir, you leave an Air Force medal on there for those that served. I mean, that, that's really amazing. Talk about the picture on the moon and the medal. Well, uh, briefly, yeah, that, that's the only picture, only family picture on the moon in all of Apollo. <laughs> and I, my kids were, uh, uh, when I flew, was one was seven, almost five, the other almost five. So I wanted to get them involved. And uh, y'all would like to go to the moon with Dad. Yeah, good. Now let's take the whole family to the moon. And so we thought of this idea, this little snapshot. A uh, friend took the picture. We got it developed. I got it approved to, to carry. 
And my idea was to drop it on the moon, the last uh, uh, EVA at the end of the last. And that's what we did. And I dropped it on the moon and took the picture of the picture, which has become a very iconic uh, image now for uh, for Apollo. And uh, it it was in. I put it in a plastic bag, if you will, enclosed it in plastic shrink wrap, I guess you'd call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it hit the moon and right side up, and I took the picture. And then also the you know, we had a uh, a medal that the Air Force had struck, a small, like a silver dollar size. Yeah. Uh, it was the 25th anniversary of the Air Force uh, in 1972. And uh, U.S. Air Force, and I was the only U.S. Air Force officer going to be on the moon that year. Uh, so we just struck up this idea of uh, saying happy birthday from the moon. And as part of that little ceremony was uh, dropping this coin on the on the moon. That's a beautiful story, sir. I mean, that's something... That yeah. on the surface of the moon, things last for billions of years. I imagine the picture what is still there and shining brightly. Correct. Well, the picture's there, but it's uh, it's the extreme temperature of the uh, lunar surface uh, uh, from night to day and cosmic radiation. Uh, everybody thinks uh, that it's all faded away now. Uh, even some people even say think the colors of the flags have uh, faded away. Uh, nobody knows unless we go back. Uh, so uh, the, the the remains of the picture are still there. Is what I'm trying to say, but I'm not sure it'd be recognizable. Well, that's incredible. I know exactly where I dropped it, though. I, if I go back, I look. <laughs> I hope we, I hope we all get to go see that, sir. And I think that's amazing. But the, so, what's amazing here? I want to just end off on something else. There's another person. Ken Mattingly, who's doing what? The loneliest man in the world job, as every one of the pilots who flies around the moon. There's a lot of science going on there, but can you imagine? I mean, those stories are just equally important, that those people are so vital to your mission. Finally, I ask this. As you're ready to leave the surface of the moon, you have to do a series of what? Buttons and switches to actually get the ascent motor going. Obviously, if that had failed... Well, then we know what would have been the likelihood of survival on the moon. But those engineers, here's a big shout out, Mr. Duke, I'm sure like you did many times, that when you pressed or flipped the switch, the ascent motor did its job, and thank goodness it did, right? You're right. Uh, You're sitting there with a lot of tension at that point. Uh, The computer's counting down to uh, uh, ignition. Uh, it's a sequence uh, that the computer initiates, uh, you know, separates a descent stage, electrical, plumbing, all that stuff, explosive bolts uh, go, and then the engine, all that ripples so fast, so you just almost one second. And uh, then the engine starts. And uh, it was, if you listen to my comments going up, what a ride, what a ride. And you're on your way. Uh, if it hadn't lit, we had some emergency procedures we could uh, 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 go through and uh, mm-hmm. try to get it going. If we didn't, we'd power down and and uh, make it last as long as possible, and maybe somebody come up with a good idea. Well, but uh, right. rocket motors are pretty simple, no moving parts. Uh, you know, you need a fuel and oxidizer, and you need a pressurization system and some electricity to open the valves, and that's it. And so uh, that it was a great little engine, that acid engine worked perfectly on every flight. 
Well, sir, the time we have is just a few more moments with you in this time in this segment, but I want to thank you, sir, for your service to the United States of America, your military service, and all, no matter what rank, the men and women of the United States military, that many have given their lives for freedom. And again, yes. 12 moonwalkers. Charles Duke is our very special guest. If you're just joining us, he's the 10th man, the 10th human to walk on the surface of the moon. He and his commander, John Young, and Ken Mattingly go into the history books with Apollo 16, April the 16th through April the 27th, 1972. Again, sir, I'm reading this. Some 211 pounds of precious moon rocks are returned to the surface of the Earth. i got to ask you this, sir. What's your hope and prayer for this country and maybe us to explore the moon again? I think we should have done it. I'm biased. Uh, we should be there already with habitation modules. But what say you about the promise of the future going to the moon? Well, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, uh, I look forward to a, a return to the moon and with habitation modules, and so we set up a uh, a space station on the moon. Uh, I think it would be a great uh, uh, environment to do that, uh, and uh, we you're close enough to get help if you have problems, uh, and. Uh, then you, you cycle crews back every three or four months or whatever it turns out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can learn some you know, manufacturing techniques. Uh, we could develop systems that we have great confidence in uh, so that when we go to Mars, uh, uh, that, uh, that we can, you're basically autonomous on your own at Mars. So we've developed these things on the moon that are so reliable that... Uh, we have great confidence that uh, we can uh, repeat it on, on Mars eventually. So uh, I think we should uh, return to the moon as uh, soon as possible. I sir, certainly agree, sir. And you're hearing it, ladies and gentlemen, from man who walks the walk. He talks it. He's been there. And, sir, just in case there's any doubting people out there, and I, I hear this in insanity from time to time that we never went to the moon, I'm here in Arizona, sir, and we're close to the folks that have uh, managed the spacecraft, the, the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And as you know, I'm amazed that the spacecraft has given such visual identification of all of the Apollo landing sites. Uh, you and, of course, the lunar rover that's on the surface of the moon. You can see the tracks, and believe me, folks, that's amazing, isn't it, Mr. Duke, uh, to see that imaging from space to show even the descent module sitting there. I'm, I'm yeah. amazed at that technology. Yeah, the, the LRO folks uh, have been real good uh, about uh, sending me uh, uh, copies of uh, some of the unique uh, photographs the, uh, the spacecraft has taken. And uh, so uh, it's hard to deny when you see the vehicles all sitting and all the landing sites, the six landing, you see the vehicles there. Uh, so it's hard to uh, say you faked it. Last comment I'd like to get to you, sir, before we go to the bottom of the hour break here. I'm understood from speaking to other moonwalkers and other astronauts that lunar dust gets in just about everything. And those precious, beautiful white suits that you have when you go to the moon, they look and you see them in the museums. They get a little bit dirtied up. And what say you inside the uh, Orion? You're there, what, trying to get as much of that stuff off? It gets in everything, I'm told. Is that correct? It's all over the place. Well, we had brushes, uh, but we quickly realized that the moon dust was so fine uh, that we weren't going to brush much off. Uh, and uh, we tried outside, got back inside, and uh, we were a little bit more uh, uh, available, I mean, uh, able to uh, uh, wipe dust off with towels and stuff. But uh, <laughs> it, it finally, we just gave up and said, uh, 
and what we were interested in is cleaning the connectors and stuff like that and just let the color of the suit go. But we ended up gray. You're right. It's uh, <laughs> It just gets all over you. And uh, uh, so it's, hard, it's just impossible to clean up. Mr. Duke, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and all the listeners who love the Apollo program. It'll never be forgotten. And my mission as Dr. Sky, among others, is to go out there and help explain and to promote and to share knowledge with the young people today about the great stories like yourself and, of course, John Young, Ken Mattingly, and all in the Apollo program and all of the astronauts. And we wish you well, sir. If you stay with us, don't hang up. As we go to the bottom of the break, I'd like to chat with you off air. That concludes this exciting edition, as always, of the Dr. Sky Show, a 10-year legacy with great guests, as you know today, from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and, of course, celebrity guests in the mix. Charles Duke, the 10th man on the surface of the moon. I'm honored by your presence, sir, and I'm sure the audience is really excited to have you. Dr. Sky reminds everyone, and I'm sure Mr. Duke would agree, right? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. Thank you. All right. My pleasure to be with you and look forward to Space Fest. Thank you, and stand by, sir, and stay on the line with us. And thank you for that interview. We'll be back in just a moment. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.